All right, Psalm 7. Before I, as I get into the psalm, you can see that part of the title in your Bibles, maybe you have this, you should, but anyway, it's, it's called Asigion of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. Now, Asigion is important to the psalm because it is, we, we think, we don't know for sure but many theologians believe that the type of song this was, was erratic rhythm. It was a chaotic rhythm that would be in keeping with the distress that David is experiencing before the Lord. So it seems to be something that's far from a very fast paced, uh, aggressive. So just keep that in mind um, as a note for you as we study this psalm. Let me now read the text. Verse one, O Lord my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion dragging me away while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him who have without cause was my adversary. Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the people's encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own plate. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. And thus ends the reading of the psalm. We thought the Psalm before this one, Psalm 6, was a disturbing psalm in one sense. It was hard, it was difficult, hard to read, but very relatable to us because I think for the most part, we, we, we feel we experience distresses. That's part of the relationship, the beauty, the connections the psalm makes to all believers. 
it relates to the believer that has struggles, that is tried, who often feels day after day proven or being reproved in the Lord. I know we talk about those things or those times being seasons of life, but for some of us, it seems like a lifetime. If we didn't know better, it looks as if David is one big complainer, but that's just not true. He is distressed. And what should a believer do in times of distress? Some of this we've already talked about. David has brought upon himself. Some of this is not his fault at all. It's brought upon him through the jealousy of others. This is probably David writing. He's being slandered in the court of Saul. Saul is possibly pursuing him and David feels vulnerable. The king has listened to these slanders and to these lies. And David has nowhere to go but to the Lord. He has uh, no authority. He's not in power, as it were. I mean, he, he, he doesn't have a massive army behind his back to go and remedy this adversary. He seems alone. It's as if he has no one with him, even though there was a small group of people with David. And this is what makes the Psalms so valuable in counseling. Now, I don't mean that just in the professional sense. I mean that as we counsel ourselves. Remember, we come to the Bible to lay ourselves out before the Bible. That Bible is the great discerner of our intentions, of our emotions, of our thoughts. It it goes deep. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God deep into our soul and it exposes us to the reality of the world that we live in, this, the reality of God, as David says in this psalm, the one who searches the heart. Let's break the psalm down. In the first thing that we will notice in the psalm, there's just four parts, and the, the psalm sort of breaks itself up into these four parts. The first thing we're going to see is there is an appeal to God according to his innocence. There's an appeal. David makes an appeal to God, and this is verses 3 through 5. In verses six through nine, David basically and praying to God and supplicating to God, he sees God as the governor of the world. He is the true king of Israel. He, and as king and as governor, has all authority and the, and the strength, if you will, to protect him from danger. He goes and he pleads his case to the king, as it were, of of the world, of the cosmos, of Israel. He goes and pleads his case to the divine governor. He has nowhere else to go. 
in verses 10 through 16, we see an exercise of his faith, his trust. He depends on God. He is resting in God to what? Protect and deliver him, we will see. And not just to protect and deliver him, but to also bring judgment against those that, well, basically the psalm suggests that's, that's, that's basically committed crimes against him. Criminal, slander, lies, deception, to the point that people are after David to take his life, a traitor to the kingdom. And so he calls upon God to come and to execute justice on his behalf. And then verse 17 is an ascription to the glory of God who delivers his people. God is the great deliverer. You know, we can't read this psalm and come to the conclusion that God delivers all his people in every instance of distress, can we? We know that. We know better than that. The greatest of those is his son. Jesus cried out to God in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if this cup could be passed from me, do so. But that wasn't the will of God. It was God's will that Jesus suffer his wrath on the cross and suffer it completely and fully. A wrath so strong and so complete and so full that Jesus even cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So it's not always in the temporal world God's will that his people be delivered. It didn't stop Jesus from, and from the human perspective, from calling out upon God in distress, did it? But it did not even stop David from crying out to God in distress. God may deliver him, God may not deliver him, but yet what shall he do? What can he do but live by faith? What can you do but live by faith, beloved? What can I do but live by faith? What can any believer do but call upon God as the protector, as the refuge, as the shield, as the great judge of the earth? What else can we do and should do but to call upon him and act in faith? You say, well, I don't feel like God is gonna save me. That's not the point. The point isn't what you feel. The point is that God calls himself a father. And you know what fathers do? Fathers protect their children. Parents, mothers protect their children. Guardians protect those under them. That's natural. That's common. That's what we ought to do. And it's unnatural if that's not the case. Even older siblings protect younger siblings. We even have a, an, 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 the nature that is so strong within us as the image of God, we can go out here and do what? Protect those who are, who are even weak, weaker than we are to protect and come along beside them. Now, we, you know, I know our day and time, we want to video the chaos and the disturbance rather than 
come to their aid. And that's another problem for another day. It's disturbing, isn't it, when we find and see that. What else could David do but cry out to God? What else can you do, beloved, but to cry out to God? Well, let's look at these first few verses and maybe we will uh, be able to work our way through. This is a long psalm. It's the longest one we've had to address yet. It's the longest of the first seven. So in this psalm, David writes in right there at the latter part of verse one, O Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. And save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. David admits that if the Lord doesn't come to his aid and help him, he has no way of protecting himself. It, it seems like it's probably very, very possible that this is someone greater than David pursuing him, which would be Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. Saul had the, uh, all kinds of power and authority. He had an army behind him, and he certainly had the means to carry this out. So that's why I think many of the commentators believe that this is the occasion. Now, we, brothers and sisters, we don't find ourselves in being pursued that way. But if someone is pursued that way, and this is their response, this is their reaction to that pursuit, then, well, how much easier is it for us when we deal with the things we deal with? I mean, we don't deal with people necessarily coming after us with an army to kill us. We may deal with slander. We may deal with backbiting. We may deal with someone at work who... Um, takes credit maybe for something we've done, an idea. That's very common in the corporate world for someone to not uh, give credit to others, but because everybody's, you know, eagerly climbing that corporate ladder, it is very, very common to hear about how someone has either stolen an idea or taken credit for something that really wasn't theirs to take. Maybe that's the case. But it's not as strong as someone pursuing your life, which is what's happening here. It's very graphic. David says right here that they're pursuing him, so there's something going on there. They're after him, and it has put him into flight. He uses the words in verse 2. It's graphic. It's, it's, it's very aggressive. They'll tear my soul like a lion dragging me away while there is none deliver. I mean, that's violent. But notice in verse three, notice in verse three, he says, oh Lord, my God, if I've done this, done what? Well, if he's, do, if he's guilty of the things they've slandered him for, if he is guilty of what they are saying about him, what does he say? If there is wrong in my hands, if I've done these things, if I repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, 
Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. I, this is, this is um, yeah, this is, uh, it's challenging for us, but I think, uh, it is also, the challenge before us, beloved, is to always keep our hearts right before God. Well, that's what David's pleading in his prayer. I mean, if we're going to pray a prayer like this, if we're going to pray and ask God for protection, if we're going to pray and say, God, I need you to shelter me in my innocence, we need to be innocent. Right? We, 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 we need to be what we're praying to God about. Lord, if I have been guilty of, of saying these things, if I'm guilty of treason, if I've done these things, Lord, by all means, don't answer my prayer. Don't come and, and shelter me in protection. David says, I am not guilty of these charges. You know, bad, you know the, 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 the worst part about slander is usually the first one who says it, everybody believes. The first one who speaks it. <laughs> you know, the Bible speaks to that. They're, what? They're, a neighbor comes and presents his case, seems right, until what? Until the neighbor presents theirs. The first thing we all hear is what we think, what? This is right. And, and of course, it's, a, it's certainly a, a warning to us not to be or maybe consider who we're hearing it from. That might be one thing. Particularly people that are very careless with accusations, careless with people's reputations, you know, careless um, in things they talk about. Maybe we have to consider those things. And, and yet, that does not stop David from pleading his innocence. Lord, I, if he's already called upon God in the psalm to be the searcher of the heart. God, you are the searcher of the heart. You've tried me. You, you know me. You, you know my thoughts. You know my meditations. You know the things I dwell on and think about. You, you know my conversations. And I plead my case. I plead my innocence before you, O Lord, and I'm calling upon you as a righteous judge to come and protect me from these charges. That's hard to do. <laughs> I mean, it's not hard to call upon God for protection. It's hard to wait for God to deliver you. I don't know if you've ever been the, the subject of slander. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that or, you know, I mean, serious slander that caused problems. And, and I can tell you, I have. And it is, it is some of the most miserable times in your life 
if you can't rest in the Lord because you have to wait upon the Lord to act on your behalf. Because if you act too strongly, I mean, if you come out guns a-blazing and declaring your innocence, what will they say about you? Oh, yeah, they're guilty. Look at them. They're guilty. Even though it stirs up anger, righteous anger. I mean, this is not true. Oftentimes we have to, and I'm not talking about like in a church court situation where you have to speak up, where you have to say things. Where I'm just in a personal setting, you have to, like like David, learn to resign yourself to the Lord's timing and for the Lord to act. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We're never to assume and take up vengeance for ourselves. That's hard. That's hard because we would, well, wouldn't we in David's case feel justified in taking matters into our own hands and teaching that person a lesson? Well, we could tell ourselves that, and people do tell themselves that. But that's not what David is doing, and it's not what the Holy Spirit has written down in the canon of God's holy word, and that's not what we're praying, and that's not what we would sing if we were singing this psalm. We would be singing all of these elements and things about it. I mean, he says right there in verse four, he says, if, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, if I have plundered him without cause, uh, it, it, who was without cause was my adversary, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample down my life down to the ground and, and lay my glory to dust. Let him overcome and t- let him overtake me. Let him pursue me. Let him wipe me out if these things are true. That doesn't mean David is sinless. David was a sinner. Doesn't mean we're sinless. It just means that we can be innocent of things that we're accused of. What do we see in verse six and following? Notice this petition. Notice this cry out. What does he just say? Arise, O Lord, in what? Your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me where you have appointed judgment. I mean, here the psalmist. Now, this is what is so important when we read the psalms and study the psalms and certainly as we look at them theologically and covenantally and experientially. I mean, notice the theology of David. He knows God. He knows God hates when the innocent are accused because God is innocent. He's righteous in all that he does. And David knows that in God's righteousness, he hates it when the innocent are punished. And God takes up their cause. You know, you, you, you look at a nation's justice system. There is not a greater travesty in the justice system than when the innocent people 
are accused, tried, and punished. Believe me this, believe this. God will take up their cause. He will take up their cause. He will hear their cries from those jail cells. And he will, in his timing, whatever that looks like, he will come against their enemies. God hates injustice. Oh, he hates it. I wish God's people hated injustice as much as God hated injustice because we'd have a much different situation going on. If it doesn't touch us, I'm okay. Yeah, as long as it don't touch me. So he calls upon God to to rise up because he knows that God hates injustice. And this is the way he, this is leading him in his prayers. And brothers and sisters, this is why theology is so important. You need to know things about God. You need to know theology so you can pray this way. But have you heard anybody pray this way? And I I don't think this is an indictment on the church. I just think we have different perspectives in in our generation and in the days that we live. But I think prayer meetings ought to have a greater element of petitioning God to come against injustice. I know we, we, we pray and ask God to overtake and overcome our illnesses. We should do that. But, but we ought to pray for the injustice of the world. We ought to pray for the injustice of the Janu- many of the January 6th people. We ought to pray for the injustices that's happening all in our country. We ought to, we ought to pray for the corruption and the crimes that we see openly. And ask God to do what? Rise up, O oh God. You are the righteous one. Come and, 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 and take up this case. And of course, you know, if, if we were to pray more like this, I think God would be more apt to, apt to move. But you know what? Many, many professing Christians go, oh, what did you just pray? Did you just pray the wrath of God upon people? Did you, is that what you did? did? Did I hear you correctly? That's what we would have to address. And yet, this is what we see in Scripture. Now, I've heard some people minimize and excuse some of these types of strong cries out to God as, well, that's Old Testament. That's not New Testament. I mean, we could go right on over right to Hebrews 12. Where do you think God is called the God of wrath and fire? Hebrews 12. The one that shakes things that are unshakable. So his theology is driving the prayer. He knows that God is righteous and he knows that God loves righteousness and he knows that God wants to defend the righteous. So David uses this. He calls upon God believing that God is going to rise up and defend the righteous and defend righteous things and people himself mainly 
Because what does he say? Arouse yourself for me. That's what he says in verse 6. Arouse yourself for me when you have appointed judgment. What does he mean by appointed judgment? You have appointed all these things to come to judgment that, that are wrong, that are criminal, that are immoral. You've appointed judgment, Lord. I'm asking you now. There will be a day when all of these things are settled, right? There is a judgment day. I, I, we have robbed ourselves of that grace, that truth. And when I say a grace, because it's a great grace when we think, I, I'm going, we're going to give an account. Wouldn't you say that part of the problem we face generationally now is the lack of responsibility and accountability is a problem? From the top down, no one's held accountable. But they are going to be held accountable. God is going to hold them accountable. God is going to hold criminals and tyrants and, and un, uh, 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 unjust judges. He's going to hold them to count. They're going to give an, an account for their treachery. And what David is saying is, Lord, can you come now? Can you come now? I know there's going to be that day. I know that day is coming, but, but act, Lord, I'm act, act now. I, I really can't help but think about the innocent people in prison today. I, I mean, look, I'm not talking about how the, just, the justice system doesn't get everything right. It's not going to. And it's a travesty even when any innocent person is judged to be guilty when they're not. I mean, I think one of the founding fathers said that it is better for a guilty man to go free than for an innocent man to be guilty. Because the community, society, groans under the weight of the innocent being punished for no reason. When a guilty person goes free, we typically say something to the effect of, it'll come around because what usually happens at some point in time, they're caught. But I can't help but think about the, the travesty of this political persecution of these January 6th. You know, when I read in these articles of grandmothers and mothers and daughters, all three in jail for just being at the location, not even going in the building. This is a psalm they could pray and should pray. This is a psalm that they can pray and call God to account to come and to render justice on their behalf. And we ought to pray this psalm for them. The 
Verse 7 and following says, let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the people. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked one come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. This is, again, backing up everything we've already said. The theology driving the prayer and the better you know theology, I'm not going to say, you know, you got to be a theologian, uh, you got to know Greek and Hebrew, you've got to read all the classic uh, theology, systematic theology books to pray. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is though, beloved, as we learn things about God from scripture, we have to pray those things. That's theology. I mean... I, can, I, would, I could go around the auditorium here and I could say, do you like being slandered? No. Does it anger you when you are slandered and when you're misjudged and mistreated? Yes. Well, how much more God? You're not pure. I'm not pure. God is a pure spirit, the Bible says. Light. He is pure. He loves righteousness. He hates evil. And, and, and even in that, he even hates more, right? If you, if, again, it's, God's not like we are. We, we have all of these varying, I can be mad and madder, but, but there is a height in that. But when you touch God's children, there's a greater sense of, of a protection, and shelter, and vindication. Just as you don't want somebody touching your children, how much more so God and his children? It's always a travesty when innocent people are accused and punished, but even more so, a greater travesty is God's people. Like Jesus, who was falsely accused What about Jesus' trial? Pretty much a mockery of justice, wasn't it? The end had already been determined before the trial started. It was uh, more of what do you call just moving through its parts rather than trying to really get to a just outcome. That was not why they tried him. They tried him because they wanted him put to death. And that's what they received. And that's why Peter, in his sermon in the book of Acts, that very first Pentecostal sermon, Peter says, you are guilty. Why? The blood of an innocent man is on your hands. What happened to that generation? What happened to the generation that falsely accused and crucified Jesus? What happened to that generation that not only falsely accused and, and, and punished and crucified Jesus, but also punished those who followed Jesus? What happened to that nation in A.D. 70? They were wiped off the face of the earth. Not one stone was left standing upon another of the greatest building in Jerusalem. 
I think God takes seriously the protection of his people. Verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts of I mean, we need to pray this more often, don't we? Let evil come to an end. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. God, come, be the searcher and the trier of hearts and minds. Now, I mean, in one sense, we tremble when we say such things. Why do we tremble when we say such things, when we confess such things, when we pray and declare, oh, God, act? Because we're sinners. We sin. How easy it is to be guilty of slander. How easy. I mean, this is not just a, now this is not a random comment of slander. This is more than that. I mean, this is an attempt to accuse a man and have Saul take his life. That's a big deal. When the Jews were trying to corner Jesus, trap him, they were trying to what? Bring him to death. They wanted him tried as a heretic. You blaspheme God. You are worthy of death. Uh, that's intentional. So we're not just talking about just, we're not talking about something that is said we wish we had. This is very intentional. This is very pointed. This is very particular. This is, this is how, if you will, a picture in one sense, how the world sees the righteous. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, do we? But against principalities, powers, and rulers Right, angelic rulers of this age. It's not against flesh and blood per se, even though there's flesh and blood involved in this psalm. These are flesh and blood people chasing after David. It's flesh and blood people picking up the spear, the sword, the shield. But in verse 10, David, again, in his petitioning and in his declaration and his theology, he knows that God is his shield. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and God and a God who has indignation every day. You know what David is saying? God hates sin every day of the week. You know, he doesn't say, oh, well, it's Christmas season. I'm a little soft on sin. No, God hates. God is holy. He's thrice holy. Super holy. Uber holy. He's the ultimate holy. He's the ultimate light, the ultimate purity, the ultimate, the clean. He, he's, uh, these concepts, only, they only belong to him as the triune God, so to speak. And, and he is these things. And guess what? He, God can never not hate sin because not to hate sin would be a, an attack upon himself. God would be divided at that point. 
God always hates sin. God always hates sin in us, beloved. But the, the, the issue, the, what we have is we have the shield. Who's our shield? Christ. Christ is our shield. We're robed in Christ. We've put on Christ as, as we learned this morning in that act of baptism, but even spiritually, Christ is our shield. And there's grace, there's mercy. This is God acting in wrath, not chastisement, beloved. A father chastens his child. God chastens those whom he loves. And God declares wrath and vengeance upon his enemies. I mean, if you were here this evening or this afternoon and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, a psalm like this would hopefully drive you to Christ. Because you're not right with God. And you don't have Christ's protection. You don't have Christ shielding you from the anger, the, the righteous anger and wrath of God. He's not your shield. He's not your protector. You are laid bare before him. What can you do? Nothing. I would, I would beg you to flee to Christ. Look at verse 12 and following. He says, if a man does not repent... He will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow he made it, and made it ready. He has pre prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. That's what we were just talking about, wasn't it? But again, verse 12, uh, what are we talking about? If a man does not repent, repent of what? His sins. His sins. What are sins? Sins are everything that is contrary to the law of God. Now, God doesn't need a sword. These are things that we understand. I mean, God doesn't need a bow and arrow. But yet the point in the picture here is that God makes ready, if you will, these, these weapons of warfare to do what? Punish the wicked. I'm telling you, your hearts tremble before God. You don't know him. Flee to God in Christ. That's, that's the point. In verse 14, he says, Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He has dug a pit and hallowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own plate. In verse 15 and 16, here's the, the truth, the doctrine. The wicked destroy themselves. Here's what I want you to take away from this. Prayer, the song. The wicked destroy themselves. Well, I don't want to believe in a God that casts people in hell. Beloved, God casts no one in hell that has not earned it, that does not deserve it, that has not asked for it. God is not randomly casting people in hell. Again, let me, 
again present you with the gospel. This is why God sent forth his son, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him have everlasting life and be shielded from that judgment wrath of God, both in this life and the life to come. A lot of people aren't gonna be able to do that though because they've been told God's a myth. God's a myth. God is the figment of these, these, these Christians out there, these silly Christians who want to hold up this book that was written by a bunch of, of these old white people sitting around this campfire. And how, I mean, this, it's foolishness, it's mythology. That's what they say. These goat herders, these little shepherd people. I mean, I mean, such a, an old, archaic book. How foolish. Many will be led to hell by that. Too many Christians are silent about that. Too many Christians won't pick up that argument and combat it, right? Defend the truth and integrity of Holy Scripture. No, we remain silent most of the time. And yet, what the Word of God tells us is, yes, God sharpens his weapons of warfare. He sharpens his arrow. He picks up his, the, the, these weapons. And yet, it says in verse 4, it's the, the wicked travails. He, con, he conceives mischief and brings forth fault. Look, he's just breeding sin. Breeding sin, that's what the heart does, beloved, without Christ. That's what the heart does without the Holy Spirit. Our hearts are, what, is, what have we always heard in the Reformed faith? Is nothing but a factory of what? Idolatry. We're ready to worship anything but God. He conceives mischief. He brings forth false. He's dug a pit and hallowed it out. What does Proverbs say? The wicked digs a pit and falls in it himself. Verse 15, the latter part of it, he says, and he has fallen into the hole which he had made. His mischief will return on his own head and his violence will descend upon his own plate. Let's go to Jesus again and bring up the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, let's back up 40 years. When Jesus was being tried and Pilate walked out upon that platform and said, I find this man innocent. What shall I do with him? Shall I release him or release Barsabbas? Which one shall I release to you as a custom is for us to release one prisoner at this time of the year? Release Barsabbas, crucify Jesus. Let his blood be on us and our children. It was. It was. Titus made sure of that when he surrounded Jerusalem and starved them out. 
That's why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, look, when you see the army surround the city, flee to the hills. Don't go down and get your cloak. Don't go down and pick up any, flee to the, escape. Because destruction is coming. This is, this is the same thing, beloved, 3,000 years before, 2,000 years before Jesus. No, David, 2,000 years. Same principle. Same principle. Let's, let us go to the flood. What caused the, the great flood in Noah's day? What, what caused it? People were eating and drinking, the scripture says, Matthew 24. People were eating and drinking and having merry and giving their children in marriage. And, but what was the problem? Those things are seem innocent in and of themselves. But what was the problem? The problem is they lived all of life, not just these innocent things, but all of these sinful things without God. They had no regard for God. They didn't want God. And that's why the church only had eight members. And they had become so corrupt that in order to preserve the church, in order to preserve Noah and his sons and their children, he brought a flood upon the earth not only to judge sin, he not only sharpened his arrows, he not only drew back the bow of wrath, but he did it to save the church. The church is no way would have been able to persevere under such great apostasy. And God came as the protector, as the strong tower of his people, and he took away the wicked. When you think about it, that's exactly what happens in Judgment Day. On Judgment Day, we're not going to be taken away. We're going to remain with God in this blessed new heavens and new earth. What are the wicked going to be done? What's going to happen to the wicked? They're taken away and put where? In everlasting destruction in the lake of fire. Where they are no longer will be any connection between them and any favorable presence of God, but God's wrath. They destroy themselves, beloved. The wicked destroys themselves. And we have allowed so many people to rant and to rave and to kick and to scream. And Oh, if God was so loving, he could cast no one into hell. And the point is, God can only come and judge righteously because he is a righteous judge. And he loves righteousness. God would be opposing himself not to judge sin. He would be divided and that is impossible with God. It's not impossible with us. We can be hypocritical. We can be double-minded. God cannot be. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, our final verse. The declaration, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. Let's stop.
You have to, if we're going to give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, we have to give thanks to the Lord for his judgments. Because his judgments are what? Righteous. Are we angry with God when we think this person deserves judgment but not this person? I will give thanks to the Lord for he is righteous and he judges righteously. Hey, brothers and sisters, that even may be family members. I know as a father who prays for not just the ongoing salvation of my children, I pray that their sins be forgiven. I'm like Job. I'm not offering sacrifices, but I am offering the sacrifice of prayer. And I pray that God would come and cleanse my children, wash them, make them clean, keep them in his favor, protect them. And what, but, but, but what am I, what is my resolve? What, like David, what is my resolve? That God is righteous. And I've told my children that. God's righteous. And he will not show you favoritism because you are my child. But I will beseech the Lord on their behalf while I have breath. But it doesn't matter, beloved. Here's my point. My point is God does not fall under our judgment. Amen? We fall under his judgment. Whatever that is. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Brothers and sisters, song, singing is one of the greatest expressions of what? Joy, resolve, happiness, contentment. When we can lift up our voices in song to God, oh, our voices may tremble. Our hearts may even ache. I think about Aaron. I, you can go and find the text. I can't even remember exactly where it is, but God had struck Aaron's sons down. And he was not allowed to grieve because they had sinned against God. I will sing praises to God and my voice may tremble and my heart may be full of, uh, 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 it may be heavy and full of sorrow, but I will sing praises to God. My beloved, listen, the Psalms are precious to the believers, to believers, to the church because they are real experiences Hurt, joy, pain, tears, gladness, worship, struggling, running for your life, praising, worshiping God one minute, running the, the Psalms are this full orbed covenant understanding of the life that we have, that we live every day. And the Psalms give us an outlet of expression to pray and to worship and to sing 
for his glory. And may they become in this series more precious to us as we look at them, as we turn them over, and as we look at our own lives through these lenses, may we appreciate those who do truly suffer. Maybe we're not, yeah, well, obviously we're not David. People are not chasing after us to kill us yet. <laughs> but maybe we will learn to appreciate the resolve of that person and apply it to our own lives. That's not nearly as challenged as these. Let's pray. Our Father, we are delighted. Lord, this psalm is so heavy, and yet there's victory, there's, there's, there's joy and gladness mingled in this sorrow, mingled in this turmoil, because, because you are, because you exist, because you are the true and living God. And Father, there can only be victory in this world because you do exist. And there is a, there's a war on the righteous, but there is a God who is at war with the wicked. Let us not forget it. Lord, let us not live like it's not true and let us learn to pray and worship according to this psalm and many others, all the psalms that we learn, Lord, let us learn to pray and to believe and to trust and to advocate and even counsel others if, if need be, Lord, from your precious word. We pray, O oh Lord, that these truths would be ours, that we'd own them and they would serve us well in shaping our lives before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, beloved, you are dismissed. <laughs>